Okay, hello. Uh, I'll leave this here. Um, right, so this is the last night of Crosspoint for a couple weeks. Uh, this is also a little crazy for me because we've been in the book of John for, I think, two years now. Um, and we are going to finish out the book of John tonight, which is a little exciting, a little sad. It's sort of like you guys. It's a little sad that y'all are leaving, but I'm also sort of excited that you're not going to be here for the summer. Like the traffic will be a little better. I don't have people sending me crazy text messages. Probably still have text, text messages. Um, anyway. All right, I love your text message. You can send them as much as you want. Um, okay, we are going to be in John 21. I'm going to make it through most of it. Ironically, we didn't really plan this, but uh, the only part we're not going to cover is what easily preached on this morning. So uh, that worked out perfect. If you really want to know what the last section in John is about, just go podcast this morning's sermon and connect it with this one. It'll be a nice little connection. Okay, um, John 21. Uh, John 21 is about the restoration of Peter. Uh, so if you were here, uh, were a lot of you guys here the night that the sound system failed? Like four, maybe four or five weeks ago? Right, so we got up to make announcements and the sound system failed. Um, and so we had to just like have this little intimate night right up here. It was nice. Uh, but it, that night we talked a lot about Peter we talked a lot about the failure of Peter uh, leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, so I want to rehash that a little bit, just remind us of what's going on with Peter. Uh, because tonight is really just landing in maybe what maybe is to me one of the most beautiful stories I think that we have in Scripture. I think it's maybe one of the most beautiful interactions we see between Jesus and another person. Uh, I really just cling to this. I cling to Peter because Peter is, uh, one, he's an idiot. Um, uh, for a time in the Gospels. In, the, in Acts, he's like a beast, but in the Gospels, Peter's just, it's just a little dumb. Uh, and so I cling to Peter. I cling to the way that Jesus interacts with Peter because I imagine a lot this is how Jesus interacts with me uh, because I am also an idiot. Um, so, all right. Uh, so if you remember the story of Peter, if you're uh, used to... If you're used to preaching, I don't know, if you're raised in the church and you know a little bit about the Gospels, you'll remember some of this. If, if you weren't, that's fine. Um, Peter is one of the first, he may be the first, uh, disciple that when Jesus actually begins his ministry, so Jesus is really just hanging out for like 30 years. We don't really know much about what Jesus is doing for the first 30 years of his life. Um, and then it looks like when he turns 30, he just begins ministry. Um, and I think a big reason that that is is because in Jewish culture, you're not really a man until you're 30. Like, you're sort of a man, I think at like 13, but then it takes to like you're 30 to where you can become a rabbi where people listen to you and you're actually considered a full-fledged man. So I'm not a man yet. I've got just a couple more months to be a child. So, um, uh, but, but so that's why we sort of see Jesus waiting till he's 30 to begin his ministry. And when he begins his ministry... Uh, one of the first things that we see him do is he approaches this guy named Peter and Peter's brother Andrew and they're fishing in a boat and they're not like with a rod and reel. They didn't really fish that way back then. They fish with nets um, and they fish for a living. Uh, they don't just fish leisurely. Like, it's been a rough day. I'm going to go fishing. No, like a rough day for them is fishing um, because they're going out in a small boat on crazy seas 
uh, oftentimes a crazy, crazy season. They've got these nets that are a little dangerous, and, um, and they're doing it. It's, it's a lot hauling in fish into the boat. It's a pretty, it's a pretty rigorous thing to do. Um, and so Peter is just taking up the family business. This is what his dad did. This is what him and his brother will do. This is uh, just what he would have been raised to do. You follow in the footsteps of your father. Um, and so Jesus comes along where the first thing he does is he sees Peter out in the boat, I believe with his brother and with his dad. And he just basically tells Peter, follow me. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, is what he says. And so what we see is Peter and Andrew lay down their nets. They lay down their livelihood. They lay down everything that they would have known, everything that they would have had hopes for the future, um, everything that their dad had been teaching them their whole life, uh, they would have set aside uh, and followed Jesus. And they followed Jesus for, you know, the three years um, that Jesus, we think it's about three years, the three years that Jesus going around doing ministry, preaching and healing and teaching and those sorts of things. Um, and what we see, begin to see develop in Peter is that first, um, his name is not Peter, his name is Simon. And Jesus sees him and he says, I'm going to change your name to Peter, which is Greek for the word rock, Petros. Uh, so he's like, your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter because you're a rock. Uh, and then what we find out is it, it almost looks like through the course of, of Peter's relationship with Jesus is that, G, that Peter's really trying hard to be a rock. He's really trying hard to be this like strong, stable guy that says all the right things at the right time. But what it usually turns out is Peter is this bullheaded guy who says all of the wrong things at the, at the, right, at the right time. The wrong things at the right time? Wrong things at the wrong time? I don't know. But he usually says the wrong things. Um, and he usually says them so boldly. Like, I'm going to try to be awesome here. And usually Jesus is like, chill out. Okay, you're being a little ridiculous. That's completely incorrect what you're saying right now. There's a couple times where Peter will say something and Jesus will be like, you hit the nail on the head right there, Peter. But that's so few, few and far between in the Gospels. Um, uh, so Peter, at one point, Jesus began to talk about how he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. And for you and me, that's obvious that that's what Jesus does. He spends three years in ministry and goes to the cross and dies. But for his disciples, that is not something that's obvious. They don't understand why Jesus is talking about dying. Um, and so Jesus begins to talk about it and Peter's like, no. That's never going to happen. Like thinking he's being awesome, he's going to protect Jesus. And Peter like looks at him, he's like, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Um, it's sort of weird where you're like, Peter's like, oh, that was wrong. Whoops. Um, and because basically the point of Jesus, he needs to go to the cross to pay for the sins of humanity. He needs to do that. That's what Jesus came to do. Um, so he says, I'll, like, I'll never allow you to die. I'll never allow that to happen, Jesus. He gets corrected there. Then later on, he starts to see, okay, Jesus is going to have to go to the cross. And there's one time uh, at the Passover meal uh, where Peter, where, where Jesus is saying, all of my disciples are going to abandon me. All of you guys are going to abandon me here when this starts to go down. This is going to go crazy. There's going to be people coming to arrest me. And all of y'all are going to flee because you're scared. Um, and Peter, again, bold, like a rock. He's like... I'll never leave you. I'm going to follow you to death. I'll, I'll, I would even give my life for you. It's so ironic because Jesus is going to give his life for Peter. But Peter's like, I'd even give my life for you. And, and it's like Jesus has to look at him and be like, bro, tonight, tonight, you are going to deny me three times. Before the sun rises, when this goes down, you're going to deny me and run away crying. And he like, looks at him and is like, so Peter doesn't get it, you know? So when everything does start to go down, when everything does like amps up in the garden, when the guards come to get Jesus that night, the guards come to get Jesus, um, and Peter's with them, and so they come to get Jesus, 
Um, and, and Jesus is really just saying, like, yeah, I'm going to go with you. Just let everybody else go. You know what I mean? Like, I'll, I'll come with you, the guards, and just let, let my friends go. And Peter rushes in with the sword. Apparently, he's not real great with the sword because he just sort of misses the guy and gets his ear. And again, Jesus has to be like, Peter, stop. And apparently, he picks up the guy's ear. He puts it back on. So even the bad blow, you know, it's like, no, we're going to have to fix that, Peter. Just golly, you know. And then I think from there, you just see Peter, he's lost. Like, no idea what's going on after that. Um, and so you see that story sort of develop where they, he gets taken, uh, Jesus gets taken by these guards to the house of Caiaphas, which is the high priest of the Jews, a lot of uh, authority there, and there's sort of a trial, a mock trial there in the middle of the night. Um, and you see what's so ironic, and I didn't point this out last time because I, I just saw it like uh, last week when I was reading this, so beautiful, is that Jesus is in front of the high priest. He's in front of the high priest, and the high priest is like leveling charges against him of being an idolater or being a, a, a blasphemer. And Jesus, uh, and, they, the, and one of the, I think one of the guards says, you're not going to answer any of this stuff, Jesus? You're not going to answer for yourself? And Jesus says, I've spoken boldly. You can ask any of my followers what I said. And then it shifts to Peter. The story just shifts to Peter. And you see someone ask Peter. It happens to be a servant girl. On the, so she's be at the bottom of the social spectrum during this time. She's a servant girl. She's at the bottom of the social spectrum. And Jesus is confronting or being confronted by uh, the high priest, which would have been the highest level of the social spectrum. And Peter is confronted by the servant girl while Jesus is saying, ask anybody. They'll tell you what I said. And one of the girls is like, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not. So ironically, Jesus is saying, that, like, Go, I don't have to answer for myself. I've spoken openly. My followers will answer for me. And then it switches, and it's like, Peter, weren't you with this guy? He's like, no, 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 I wasn't. I wasn't. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And he does that three times is what we see. And then the rooster crows. Um, and then another gospel tells us that they lock eyes, and Peter's crushed, and he runs out. He's just crushed, and he, and he leaves. He, like, sees that he did exactly what Jesus told him he would do. So that's sort of the background. That happens. You get this... It's John 18. You just get this unfolding of Peter's failure is all it is. Um, and then you get the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then here we are. It seems like John is tying up this loose end with Peter. So let's start reading in, uh, in, in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin... Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Uh, so just, just to highlight this, my understanding of the text is that Peter, when he's saying let's go fishing, um, some people are going to say this is like him completely abandoning all the promises that Jesus had made to him about being a fisher of men. I think that's partly in there. I think a lot of this is that Peter is so lost, so confused, doesn't know what's going on. He's just returning to what he knows. So it's not like I'm just going to quit everything. I'm out of here. But it is it's some of that. It is him saying like all of this has gone down. Uh, he's, he's heard stories of Jesus being resurrected now. So I think he's a little bit like, 
okay, what Jesus did really was something, but he doesn't quite know what that something is. All he knows is that Jesus is, is more than what he expected, but I think all in, like, lodged in Peter is that he did fail and that maybe those failures nullified all the promises that, that Jesus made to him. And so I think there is a bit of him wrestling here, and I think he's just sort of like, let's go fishing. Like, let's, that's all we really know. We can't just sit around. Let's go fishing. Let's go, the livelihood that we left, let's return to that. Um, and so the other ones are like, yeah, we'll go with you. We'll do that. Um, and, and they fish all night, and they don't catch a thing. I know how that feels. I've been fishing like 10 times in the last like month, and I have not caught a thing. Never mind. Just sort of let that out. Let that go. Um, so just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Uh, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Uh, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, so John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John says to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat Dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, um, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Uh, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Uh, so a couple things. Uh, I think, like I said, lodged in Peter is the knowledge of his failure, his confusion about what's about to happen. What, who is Jesus anyway? Who is this guy? Who is he? He rises from the dead and then he appears to people and he walks through walls, but he's leaving and where's he going? I don't have any idea what's going on. Um, so I think lodged in Peter is this confusion still about who Jesus is, what he's called him to do to be a fisher of men. And then all the promises that Jesus was making to Peter along the way, like uh, that, that he was going to build his church on Peter. He actually calls him the rock and he says, on you I will found my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? It's like, wow, that's a crazy promise. If Jesus ever told that to me, I'd be like, please not me, someone else. I'm sorry, I, that sounds crazy. Uh, and so you've got these promises that Jesus made to Peter. And all the while, Peter is really trying hard, I think, to, to be, be found worthy of those promises. To be the guy that Jesus is making him out to be. You know, to be the guy that Jesus says that he is. And I think Peter's trying really hard. And then when the rubber meets the road, uh, I think the best way to put it is that the rock, he crumbles. He crumbles. He crumbles in front of a servant girl. And then, and then all of his insecurities, I think that he'd probably been trying to hide his whole life. Uh, this man that he was trying to be, the strong rock of a man, just finds out that he just was not that guy. Um, and he just crumbles. 
And so I think lodged in him is all these fears about, has he nullified all the thing that Jesus wants to do? Will that, will that not be true anymore? What does Jesus want from him now? Is Jesus mad at him? Who knows? You know, I think all that's swimming around in Peter. And so when Jesus walks on the shore and Peter's out in the boat, and Jesus just being crazy, Jesus does crazy stuff. But hey, he casts the net on the other side, and they haul in the fish, and Peter realizes who it is. He's like, screw the fish and the fishing. And he puts on his coat, he puts on his outer garment, and he ties it up, and he jumps in, and he swims to shore. I think there's like, I think there's just this hope in him. You know what I mean? Like, like Jesus is not dead. He's resurrected. And, and somehow, I don't know what he is, but he wants something with us still. You know what I mean? Even in our failure, he still, he still wants this relationship. He still wants this. Uh, and so I think there's this hope in Peter, but I don't think he has any idea um, about what's going on still. Uh, and so, ironically, what it says here, uh, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Oddly enough, this word charcoal fire um, is not the typical word that you would use for fire. For fire, you would use the word puros. Uh, it's a light-giving fire. Uh, but this is a charcoal fire. Incidentally, it's only used twice in the New Testament, this word charcoal fire. Oddly enough, the only other time that this word is used is in John 18 when Peter is standing next to a charcoal fire and talking to the servant girl that he denies Jesus in front of and then locks eyes with Jesus with. So he's warming himself. That's just that's what John tells us, that he's outside <clears throat> warming himself by a charcoal fire and the servant girl asks him, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says no. And then he locks eyes with Jesus. And then fast forward to John 21. The only other time this word is used is John 21 and John 18, where Jesus is here making a charcoal fire on the beach. It's just like, some people have said this, and I think it's right. Do you know how smell, more than any other sense that we have, triggers memory? You know? Like, you can smell something that you haven't smelled since you were like four years old, and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I know what that is, and that that takes me back there. It almost just takes you back there. They say smell uh, has, uh, as far as our sensory organs go, smell uh, is more closely tied to memory than any other sense that we have. Um, and so you got the smell of this charcoal fire, no doubt triggering in the mind of Peter what happened last time he was around a fire like this. And it was him rejecting Jesus in front of a servant girl. Um, and so let's, let's hash this out uh, in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Do you love me more than these? Oh, man, that's crazy. I think, oh my God, like Peter just so wrapped in all of the confusion and the guilt and the insecurity and not knowing, not knowing how to even approach his, his friend and his mentor and this guy that he loves so dearly and all, all that Jesus said to him is, do you love me? Uh, then, then feed my lambs. <laughs> just feed my lambs. You know, it's like, like, basically Jesus just saying to Peter, like, if you're still in this, I'm still in this. I, I understand everything that happened. I knew it was going to happen. If you're still in this, I'm still in this. You haven't done anything that ruins anything. 
And so what we see in that, in that statement, exactly what he says is, feed my lambs. What you see in there is, what Jesus had been saying in, in, in chapters 19 and chapters 20 is that in the same way that the Father sent Jesus, so he's sending the disciples. And so Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John 10. And so what he's saying to Peter is, in the same way that the Father sent me to be the good shepherd, I'm sending you to be a shepherd. He says, feed my lambs. Everything that I've called you and wanted you to do, let's begin doing that. Like everything you've done is not, has not nullified anything. Like I'm in this, if you're in this, do, like, do you love me? Um, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Oh my gosh, that's just crazy. I think what's going on here, like, like uh, Kyle talked about it this morning, that there, there's these three failures and three denials of Peter. And so Jesus is, is building this charcoal fire to, rem, to sort of bring to light that time. And John's highlighting it so we can make the connection. And then three times he asks, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I think, have you ever been in a fight with somebody? Have you ever been in a fight with somebody? Uh, they got real intense. And then y'all just sort of part ways for like, you know, three or four days. And you don't talk to each other and you don't call. But then you go to hang out somewhere and they're there. And you sort of don't know how to approach that person. You don't know, like, is everything cool? And they just start making friendly talk. And so you're sort of like, okay, everything's cool now. And, and nothing's really addressed about that huge explosive fight that we just had three days ago, but you're acting like everything's cool. And so I suppose I'll act like everything's cool, even though I'm a little bitter about that, but we'll just, and you just make friends over the course of the night and then the whole thing is smoothed out, but you never really addressed like the issue. And so it just sort of stays like, oh, are we cool or yeah, okay, we'll just, yeah, fine. Yeah, whatever. I think Jesus is intentionally not allowing that to happen. This is Jesus' way of not allowing this unsaid uh, confusion and fear and insecurity cripple Peter. Because it absolutely can. It absolutely, it absolutely will if Jesus doesn't address it. And so Jesus is in his three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you? And every time he answers, he doesn't just say you're forgiven. He doesn't just say, okay, it's cool. He, he entrusts to him his own ministry. He entrusts to him what he always promised him that he would be doing. He entrusts him. He puts trust back into Peter. You know, he doesn't just say, okay, it's cool, but, you know, I don't want you to talk to any of the other disciples for a while. And, like, I need you to go sit in a hole or something, you know. It's like, he, do you love me? You know I love you. Do you love me? You know I love you. Do you love me? And then he says he was grieved. But I think in that grief, there was like a bit of like, it's what he says. It's what he says. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know, you knew what was going to happen to begin with. You knew that I was going to 
I was going to fall and crumble underneath the servant girl. You know that I love you and I can't do what you've called me to do because I find myself fearful and insecure sometimes. Like You know it. You, you know all the, the things in Peter, the confusion, the anxiety, the, the wanting to be this man of God that he just doesn't turn out to be, and, and he crumbles when Jesus needs him most. I don't say he needs him most, but he crumbles when, when, every, when the rubber hits the road, and, and, and he's like, you know everything. You know this. It's like, what, what else do I have? I'm not, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I want to be. But I love you. You know, I love you. And he says, entrust him again. Feed my sheep. Um, and I just want to highlight this because uh, you'll see it if you, ever, if you ever read some other translations. That there's something going on with the language here. And I hesitate to make too much of a big deal about it. Uh, because I'm not sure John intended it to be taken the way sometimes it's taken. But what you see in John, if you read the NIV, you can see it a little bit. But when Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? He uses this word for love, agape, which is this full, perfect, godly love. And when Peter responds, he uses the word phileo, which is that brotherly affection. Um, And then again, Jesus says, do you agape love me? That true love. If you read in the NIV, you'll say, you truly love me. Um, and then Peter again responds, yes, Lord, I phileo love you. I love you with that. It's, like, it's almost like he's saying, I'm not going to say agape. Almost like you see the brokenness in there. Um, and then the third time that Jesus asks, he says, Peter, do you phileo love me? Like he uses that word. He uses Peter's word. And this is when it says that Peter's grieved. And this is when it says, he says, you know all things. And so some people have said that there, there's an interplay with the words there. I think John just hesitates to use the same word seven times in a row. There's a lot of stylistic things. But I think you can still make the point that something in there is, is John is trying to draw out um, that Peter has been broken. He's been broken. But in his brokenness, something beautiful is coming out. Something really beautiful is coming out. Um, and so I, th- I want to I bring that out. I think there's something really beautiful going on with Peter right here. Uh, and it makes me ask the question, it makes me ask this question. If you've read this story, or story, the story surrounding Jesus and Peter, if you read it, I believe in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually looks at Peter before before. Uh, Peter fails him, and he says the craziest thing that I've ever heard in my life. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan has demanded you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Isn't that crazy? What is this crazy? Jesus looks at a a person. What if Jesus looked at you and said, hey, Satan has demanded to have you. To sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. I'd be like, bro, you better do something else. You better do something more than that. That is crazy. It's crazy. But I prayed for you. Uh, and so what we understand, the sifting of Peter, that's, that's the sifting of Peter is that very thing. 
where he denies him three times. Why does Jesus allow that to happen? Jesus, he doesn't just know Peter's going to fail him. He knows that Peter's going to fail him because Satan is tempting him and Satan is coming after Peter to destroy Peter. And Jesus' response is, go for it. Yeah. (laughs) Do it. See what happens to him. I'm going to pray for him, though. (laughs) Come on, man. What's going on? What's going on there? Um, I think what you see through the development of the Gospels is that Peter is like us. Uh, He's like me, and I bet you he's probably not like all of you, but he's like some of you. That Peter really wants to be a hero for Jesus. Peter wants to be awesome for Jesus. Peter wants to be this really great rock of a man for Jesus. And Jesus does not want Peter to be a hero. Or not in the way that Peter's trying to be a hero. It was like the whole time Peter's trying to prove his love, prove that he'll do anything, prove that he's just like crazy and I'll, like, I'll follow you to the death, Jesus. What's up? Let's do this. You know, like trying to prove it and trying to be this guy. Um, and he wants to prove that he is valuable to the kingdom. And... And what we see in Jesus allowing this to happen in this brokenness, and the way I put it, this brokenness that something beautiful emerges out of, is that that's not the way that the kingdom of God operates. The kingdom of God does not need heroes and strong men. Um, It needs humble and faithful men. And I want to hash out what that means. And the best way I can really drop into this is is just sort of my journey over the last three years. Uh, So I became a believer when I was 22. I lived in Houston for about a year, and then I moved here to be a a youth pastor for a couple years at a small church on the south side of town. And so after I became a believer, I started listening to uh, just some podcasts from some guys that I really appreciated the way they talked about the Bible and the way they talked about Jesus like Matt Chandler and Francis Chan and John Piper a little bit until I sort of got angry at Piper, but me and him are cool now. Um, And, uh, you know, Tim Keller. uh, I started listening to these guys. And everything in me appreciated uh, what the, the wisdom that I got from them, but everything in me wanted to be that. Everything in me wanted to be like, I want to be this great preacher that writes books and people listen to and they buy videos of, you know, Uh, and that people podcast and they're like, oh, you should check out this sermon. You know how you'll be like, you should check out this Chandler sermon. It's so good. And I'll tell people that. And I think deep inside, I'm like, man, one day if I just try super hard, you know, if I go to seminary and try real hard and, and I do this thing that I can be, you know, I can be this like this pastor that changes people's lives, you know. I could be real valuable to the kingdom. I could be just awesome. And the, everything in me wanted to be, you know, a hero to somebody. You know, I want to be the guy that changes your life. I want to be the guy that you're like, oh, this sermon just was so wonderful. I mean, tell your friends about it, you know. 
There's this desire in me for notoriety. Not notoriety for a bad cause, you know? I want to have notoriety for being awesome in the kingdom. Um, and I think we have that... Um, I think we have that locked up inside of our view of Christianity right now, actually. Uh, we have these guys on a pedestal, and I have these guys on a pedestal, you know. I want to be like this guy. I want to be like Chandler. I want to be like Chan. Uh, not because they serve well and love their wives well and love their children well or love their congregation well, but because people know who they are um, and like what they say. <laughs> How shallow. How shallow. Um, and I think... Um, it's just, that's what I understand what's going on in Peter. He wants to be this valuable, awesome guy in the kingdom. And I think through this sifting like wheat, as crazy as that sounds, uh, that the Lord is breaking Peter down. I think that's what the Lord wants to do in, the, in us if we'll allow him to do it. Um, is he wants to create faithfulness. And this sounds crazy. Faithfulness in the place of passion. Maybe not in the place of it, but definitely supplementing it. Uh, we are a generation of Christians who have seen that the Christianity of our parents seems a little passionless and seems a little weak. Seems like it just revolves around going to church on Sundays. We want to see something more. We want to see something more. We want to be something more. We want to be... We want to be the, the Christian that changes a campus. We want to be the Christian that changes the world. We want to be a Christian that people know about and hear about because we, we, we shake things up. You know what I mean? Like, I want that for Crosspoint. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I, oh, my gosh, I just want Crosspoint to be awesome. People's lives to be changed. And it's like, that's good, sort of. Sort of. And so what we see, what we see in the breaking down of Peter, and then in Jesus saying, hey, feed my lambs. You think he would say like, okay, go plant a thousand churches. Give up everything and move somewhere. What does he say? Feed my lambs. And the only way I understand this is, uh, is at my house. What I'm noticing is the more animals we're accumulating and the more children are included in that, they were accumulating. I wake up in the morning uh, to sometimes the baby crying and sometimes the baby not crying. And when he's not crying, I go outside and I feed our two dogs and I keep them, uh, I feed one and feed one and keep them separated so they don't sort of go crazy and bark at each other. And then I go get the water and put water in their bowls. And then I take the cat. We have an indoor cat and an outdoor cat. And I make sure the outdoor cat doesn't come inside. And I'm like, no, Mo, get away. And I kick him away from the door. And I take his food and I try to get it in his bowl, but he's a little aggressive. And so he hits the cup out of my hand a lot. So I got to like hit him on the head with the cup to keep him away. And then drop it in real fast before he scatters it everywhere. And I go inside and Momo, which is the inside cat, a little crazy, but also aggressive. And so I got to like, Momo's loud. And it's like, I was like, shut up. I'll give you some food. And so I feed the cat. And then I, we just got some baby chicks. And so go outside and turn the light off on the chicks and make sure they got water. Make sure there's not a bunch of poop down in there where all the hay is. And put more hay on top of the poop so that it stays nice and clean for them. And then pick them up and check them. They don't have little mites on them that are sucking their blood and killing them. Make sure they got water. Make sure they got little chick food because they get in the chick food and they like put their feet in it and they scratch it out. And it's like, you, you didn't eat half of it. And so I got to fill up twice as often. 
And it's like, oh, and then by the time I make it up, then the baby's crying. And luckily I don't, you know, can't feed the baby. So, <laughs> so I just get the baby and I change him and I bring him into Lauren. And Lauren's like, I, can, I was like, I don't want to wake you up, but I'm sorry. We're going to have to do this. And so as soon as the baby sees Lauren, he's like, ah, ah, ah. Because apparently he now knows that she provides the milk. Uh, and so it's like. Right? And then just in time, maybe, maybe grab a, a coffee and hopefully get to read the Psalms for like 20 minutes. And then get home and do it all over again. That's like the best way that I can understand what Jesus is telling Peter to do. This is not going to be a ton of decisive action. This is not going to be a ton of um, life-changing experiences. This is going to be a ton of repetitive faithfulness that nobody sees and nobody applauds and nobody claps your hand. You're just faithful. You go in and you feed the animals and you feed, feed the crazy cat and the crying baby. Right? And then sometimes I'll make dinner for Lauren. But there's something about it that's just so routine and so mundane but this is how Jesus says, this is, where, this is where you find life and this is where my people find life is in the slow, routine, mundane, day-to-day feeding, tending, feeding, tending. And I think in our form of Christianity, we have trumped up so much the visible ministry that we don't think it's okay anymore. And even me, I don't think it's okay. It's like I had to fight it. What if I am a pastor who's faithful in a little town in East Texas at a pretty small college with a group of, in a small church and I faithfully try to understand what the Word says and tell it to you? Is that okay? I never write a book. People in New York don't know who I am. People in California don't know who I am. When I die... 20 years later, nobody even remembers me. There's not a memoir written about me that other people pick up and read, and they're like, I want to be a Christian like him. Is that okay? Is that all right? Is it okay to be okay with faithfulness? Is it okay to be okay with that? And I think that's what the Lord has been impressing on my life for the last, like, year. Like, Terrell, let go. Let go. Let go. Just like, let go. You're going to strive and you're going to toil and you're going to work to be a hero and to be awesome when all I'm calling you to do is to feed my lambs and tend my sheep and be faithful and be humble and be okay with nobody ever knowing your name. Is that okay? Is that all right? And I was going to ask you, is that okay in your life? Is it okay in your life if you get a job after you graduate um, and you get the opportunity to, to, over the course of 40 years, to disciple 10 people. And you take 10 people over the course of 40 years and you teach them how to faithfully walk with God in a way that brings life to them and life to the people around them. Is that okay? And that you love your family. And you take care of your pets. We've made the visible ministry so much more than it is, and it provides nothing. When the Lord is calling us as Christians to faithfulness, not to this crazy passion that will do anything, 
but to this faithfulness that will do anything. Because look at this. Look at this. So what happens after he tells Peter this? Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show about what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Same thing he said to him. Those two words are the same first words that he said to him. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Again, he says to him, after the failure, after the restoration, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and you're going to do that for a long time. And when you get old, people are going to put clothes on you and take you to a cross, and they're going to nail you to a cross next to your wife. And Peter's response when they do that is he says, no, don't crucify me in the way that Jesus was crucified. I'm not worthy of it. And Peter has the Romans crucify him upside down because he says he's not worthy. That didn't come because Peter was crazy passionate. That came because Peter was faithful over the course of his long life doing mundane, trivial things and supporting the people around him. And he saw God move in beautiful, miraculous ways that he was able to say to his God, I know you, I understand you, I love you, and I will do whatever it is. It was something much deeper than crazy passion that pushes this one man to crucify him, get crucified upside down on a cross his faithfulness faithfulness and in his faithfulness he sees God move and he grows slowly over time to know and understand that his God is more faithful than he will ever be and that's all that matters and that's all that matters is that he serves a faithful God and it pushes him to say I'm not <laughs> worthy to be crucified right side up that's insane. That is nuts. That is nuts. And so, and so the question I asked you, the question I asked you, what does faithfulness look like in your life today and tomorrow? I don't care about the dreams that you have. Some of those have been put in your head by the Lord, and he's going to bring them to fruition. And some of those have been put into your head by yourself. Uh, because you want notoriety, because you're just like me and you're just like Peter. But what does faithfulness look like? What is faithfulness? What does it look like to put your head to the grindstone and do what the Lord has called you to do day in and day out? Never write a book. Never have a book written about you. Never do anything crazy and wild for the Lord. But to be faithful day in and day out to your community and to your family, and to the people that God has put around you for you to give life to them, for you to bring about discipleship in their life. So I'm going to hit three places just because I know where we are. It's the end of the year. Um, some of you are leaving here. You've had the Lord really move in your life over the course of the past year, the past semester, and you're going back home to an environment where people don't understand you as a Christian. 
They don't understand you as a person who's trying to walk with the Lord. They only know the you that used to party with them in high school. And they only know the you who smokes a little weed and gets drunk occasionally. That's the only you that they know. And so you are beginning to walk with the Lord. You're beginning to see the fruitlessness of that. You're beginning to find purpose in obedience to him. And you're going back to an environment where people don't know and understand that about you. And here you have a strong community around you that's pushing you in this direction and wants to see this from you. And you're walking into an environment where they don't want that for you. They want you to do what you have always done because you being a new Christian makes them feel super uncomfortable, real uncomfortable, just by you being in the room and not even talking about Jesus, but not hanging out and doing what they're doing. And so what does faithfulness look like in your life? Let's not talk crazy. Let's talk what does faithfulness look like in your life and you're going home to a hostile environment and you're going home into a place where people don't care about your Christianity and they don't care about your walk with the Lord and they don't care for you to be in community. What does faithfulness look like there? And so I would say in light of what I've just said, you don't have to change the world. You don't have to change your family. You don't have to change your friends. That is not on your shoulders. What is on your shoulders is to be faithful to what the Lord is leading you. And I can guarantee you what the Lord is leading you to at this point. And I'm sure he wants to do amazing things through you and he wants to bring people to life in his name through you. But he's not going to ask you to do that right now. What he's asking you to do is to learn what it means to stand against the lies of the demonic realm, which are trying to get you caught up in all of this crap that you're walking into, to stand against the lies of the world that you live in. When I say the world that you live in, I mean the specific culture of your hometown and your friend group back in your hometown. There are specific lies and expectations that they have for you that you will be pressured to live underneath and live in, whether they tell you what those expectations are or not. And you're going to walk right into that. And what the Lord is calling you to do faithfulness now looks like learning to stand against those things and just not submit to the temptation that is going to be put around you learning to stand when you don't have as strong a community around you as you do here that's what the Lord is calling you into right now the Lord is not calling you to like like change everyone's life when you get there He may want to do that, and he might do that through you as you submit to faithfulness through him. My point being that if you look at King David, uh, who did so much for the Lord, if you look at Moses, who did so much for the Lord, what he did, uh, Moses wants to see change in the life of his people, so he goes down, he kills an Egyptian who's oppressing his people, and then has to run. I'm about to back up, I'm getting excited. Um, Moses is passionate about setting his people free. He tries to set him free in his own way, and it doesn't work. And then the Lord sends him to be a shepherd for 40 years before he calls him to set his people free. David was a shepherd for a long time before he was king. And he works up to being king very slowly as he serves underneath another bad king. You'd be surprised how many shepherds there are in the scriptures. And a shepherd is not an easy task. But what he was calling his people too was faithfulness 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 and if you humble yourself I will exalt you at the proper time that's what he's calling his people to so I'm not saying it's bad to talk to to your friends about the gospel I'm not saying that at all I think that's awesome that's something you need to do it's something that I do when I talk to people if you get around me for a little while we're going to talk about the gospel there's no doubt about it I'm going to sneak it in on you too you're not even going to know we're talking about the gospel until I run up on you and we came in from like quantum physics or something like that's fine 
But what I'm saying is I understand and know that it is not my job to save people. It's my job to be faithful and ask the Lord to lead and me be faithful to his leading. And so right now, I know there are a lot of you who are just now learning what it means to be obedient. And so be okay with being obedient. Be okay with going to your friend's house where everybody's getting high and don't get high with them. Learn to do that well. Learn to go to a place where people serve alcohol and you don't get drunk. Learn to do that well. Learn to tell your friends, no, I can't go to the bar because that's too much of a temptation for me. So if y'all want to chill, we can stay at the house. Learn to do that well. And as you are faithful in the small things, the Lord will entrust to you more. More. Okay? Um, And then I would say, remember the gospel when you fail. Let me tell you how the the enemy works against you, because he works against me in the same way. The enemy works against you by leading you into temptation, enticing you into temptation. When you fall to that temptation, the next thing the enemy does is like, dang, you're a bad Christian. What do you think God thinks about you now, huh? That's how the enemy works against you, and that you fall into temptation, and when you fail, you have a hard time returning to the Lord because you are not really clear on the truth about the gospel, which says the blood of Jesus cleanses you no matter what happens, no matter what happens. And in your quest for obedience, you will, like Peter, fall and fail and fumble, and Remember the gospel that the blood of Jesus has justified you and there is nothing else you need to return to his presence. No quiet time. You don't need to fast for three weeks. You don't need to read all of the book of Isaiah and then the, the Lord is happy with you again. You're like, okay, we're, we're cool again. No, you can say, I failed here. I didn't want to fail, but I did it because I'm weak. I believe the blood of Jesus covers it. And I'm Father, I believe I'm in your family and you love me and I return to you. And I'm done. Okay? I'm done. So, for those of you returning to a place of hostility, because you're going to get enough accusation from your friends and your family for not being a good Christian. You don't need to entertain it by yourself. You don't need to do that. Um, So, then there's some of you who are not going home to that environment. There's some of you who are going home to an environment of ease. You're going home to an environment of comfort. You're going home to a place where there is a, a strong group of Christians, that your family are Christians. Your parents do care about your walk with the Lord. Um, and you've had a rough semester. And so what I would say to you, faithfulness for you is very simple. Take time to rest in the Lord. And that's not the same as being a lazy bum. Take time to pull away and rest in the Lord and to... When I say rest in the Lord, what I mean is to take time taking small pieces of Scripture like the Psalms, which is what we're talking about this summer, and saying, I believe you are my shepherd. I believe you will lead me where you want me to go. I believe you will provide for me everything that I need. I believe that you will restore my soul, and I trust you, and I love you to do it. And you verbally state what you believe about our Heavenly Father, and you place your trust further and further onto Him. And you ask him, what is it you would love for us to do today? What is it you want to walk us into today? And you don't saddle yourself with a bunch of good Christian things. Probably not helpful for you to go to 11 Bible studies a week when you get back home. Probably not helpful. It's probably helpful for you to find some time with the Lord and maybe commit to one group of people. That's helpful. Um, 
Take some time to rest in the Lord. Don't get inundated with video games um, and movies and watching a million freaking things on Netflix. Good Lord. Um, watch a little bit. That's cool. Check out some documentaries. Oh, catch up on Downton Abbey or something. But, but slow down and take time to rest in the Lord. There's something different between resting in the Lord and being a lazy bum because you've had a rough semester. You will find in your laziness that you did not acquire any more life or any more energy or any more anything. All you did was waste precious time and you will jump back into the fall with so much on your plate and you will have not found any more encouragement from the Lord because all you did was fill yourself with garbage. And then the last one, obviously, to, the, to those of you who are not coming back, those of you who are graduating or moving to a different place, um, this is what I've seen over and over and over again. This pattern is very normal. You are in a strong community of believers who really care about your lifestyle. They care about how much you drink. They care about if you drink. They care about if you smoke. They care about uh, how you and your girlfriend are. They care about those things. They ask you about those things. You're constantly going to a group where they talk to you about it. You're about to leave here and get into the working world. What the pattern that I see most of the time is, is you will leave a strong community. You'll not really reject Christianity and you won't really reject the Lord even though I see that happen quite a bit and you slowly move into a lame purposeless existence to where you work Monday through Friday and you make it to the end of the week um, and all you do is like veg and gorge for the week whether that's on drinking whether it's on food or whether it's on Netflix or whatever it is um, and you slowly drift away from the Lord and you don't really do anything bad but you never really do anything good you never really do what the Lord is calling you to do you never really invest in discipleship you never find a gospel preaching community to invest yourself back into because it's so much harder to do it after you graduate than it is here so much harder so what I see most people doing is they drift away from the Lord until they have kids kids and they're like I want my kids to grow up in a church and they jump back in the church and they start coming back to church a little bit because they want their kids to be Christian and the course of their life has never ever ever been a sole desire to pursue the Lord in faithfulness it was a group of friends here that kept me accountable uh, a lifeless life until I got back into this group of people who keep me accountable again it was never, I desire to see the Lord move in the lives of the people around me. Lord, shape me into a person who can make disciples of other people that I can take a Bible and teach someone how to walk with the Lord in a way that brings life to them and sets them free of insecurities and sets them free of anxieties and sets them free of the crap that's going on in their life. Make me into a person who can do that so I don't waste my life away. And that all we do is we be a good boy or we be a good girl for the next five or eight years until you have a baby and you bring the baby to church and then you get to listen to more preaching. That's the pattern. Um, and so I would say to those of you who are graduating, please, God, find a church that preaches the gospel. Find a church that talks about what Jesus has done for you all the time, all the time. Invest yourself in that community and make sure they care about discipleship. Make sure they care about discipleship and have them disciple you until you can make disciples. Please, Lord, do that quickly by the leading of the Spirit to the right place. Maybe a house church, it may be a mega church. I don't know. 
but make sure they preach the gospel, make sure they care about community, and make sure they understand discipleship. Make sure they understand it, and they're not playing games. Because you can really quickly immerse yourself into a place where they never talk about Jesus from the stage, so it's never talked about in the pews, and it's never put into your life. And all that you get is be better, do better, be better, do better, be better, do better. And all you get from that is I'm going to try to be better and do better, and I'm not really that much better than I was earlier, so I feel like crap for it. Okay. That's it. There will be incredible joys and deep, satisfying life in faithfulness to the Lord. And it will probably lead you into suffering. And that suffering will not be without a purpose. It will conform you to the image of Jesus and it will bring others closer to the Lord by them seeing it. Or there will be a lifeless, purposeless comfort and ease until you reach suffering and you won't know how to deal with it. Those are the paths you got. That's where it's going.